Section 1 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Melitzia. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masvin Roberts. Preface and Book 1, Chapters 1 to 3. Preface Whether the task I have undertaken of writing a complete history of the Roman people, from the very commencement of its existence, will reward me for the labour spent on it, I neither know for certain, nor if I did know would I venture to say. For I see that this is an old established and a common practice, each fresh writer being invariably persuaded that he will either attain greater certainty in the materials of his narrative, or surpass the rudeness of antiquity in the excellence of his style. However this may be, it will still be a great satisfaction to me to have taken my part, too, in investing to the utmost of my abilities the annals of the foremost nation in the world with a deeper interest, and if in such a crowd of writers my own reputation is thrown into the shade, I would console myself with the renown and greatness of those who eclipse my fame. The subject, moreover, is one that demands immense labour. It goes back beyond seven hundred years, and, after starting from small and humble beginnings, has grown to such dimensions that it begins to be overburdened by its greatness. I have very little doubt, too, that for the majority of my readers, the earliest times and those immediately succeeding will possess little attraction. They will hurry on to these modern days in which the might of a long paramount nation is wasting by internal decay. I, on the other hand, shall look for a further reward of my labours in being able to close my eyes to the evils which our generation has witnessed for so many years. So long, at least, as I am devoting all my thoughts to retracing those pristine records, free from all the anxiety which can disturb the historian of his own times, even if it cannot warp him from the truth. The traditions of what happened prior to the foundation of the city, or whilst it was being built, are more fitted to adorn the creations of the poet than the authentic records of the historian, and I have no intention of establishing either their truth or their falsehood. This much license is conceded to the ancients, that by intermingling human actions with divine, they may confer a more august dignity on the origins of states. Now, if any nation ought to be allowed to claim a sacred origin and point back to a divine paternity, that nation is Rome. For such is her renown in war, that when she chooses to represent Mars as her own and her founder's father, the nations of the world accept the statement with the same equanimity with which they accept her dominion. But whatever opinions may be formed, or criticisms passed upon these and similar traditions, I regard them as of small importance. The subjects to which I would ask each of my readers to devote his earnest attention are these, the life and morals of the community, the men and the qualities by which through domestic policy and foreign war dominion was won and extended. Then as the standard of morality gradually lowers, let him follow the decay of the national character, observing how at first it slowly sinks, then slips downward more and more rapidly, and finally begins to plunge into headlong ruin, until he reaches these days in which we can bear neither our diseases nor their remedies. 
There is this exceptionally beneficial and fruitful advantage to be derived from the study of the past, that you see, set in the clear light of historical truth, examples of every possible type. From these you may select for yourself and your country what to imitate, and also what, as being mischievous in its inception and disastrous in its issues, you are to avoid. Unless, however, I am misled by affection for my undertaking, there has never existed any commonwealth greater in power, with a purer morality, or more fertile in good examples, or any state in which avarice and luxury have been so late in making their inroads, or poverty and frugality so highly and continuously honoured, showing so clearly that the less wealth men possessed, the less they coveted. In these latter years, wealth has brought avarice in its train, and the unlimited command of pleasure has created in men a passion for ruining themselves and everything else through self-indulgence and licentiousness. But criticisms which will be unwelcome, even when perhaps necessary, must not appear in the commencement at all events of this extensive work. We should much prefer to start with favourable omens, and if we could have adopted the poet's custom, it would have been much pleasanter to commence with prayers and supplications to gods and goddesses that they would grant a favourable and successful issue to the great task before us. End of preface. Book One, The Earliest Legends. One, Aeneas in Italy. To begin with, it is generally admitted that after the capture of Troy, whilst the rest of the Trojans were massacred, against two of them, Aeneas and Antenor, the Achivi refused to exercise the rights of war, partly owing to old ties of hospitality, and partly because these men had always been in favour of making peace and surrendering Helen. Their subsequent fortunes were different. Antenor sailed into the furthest part of the Adriatic, accompanied by a number of Anicians who had been driven from Paphlagonia by a revolution, and after losing their king, Pylomenes, before Troy, were looking for a settlement and a leader. The combined force of Anicians and Trojans defeated the Eugenii, who dwelt between the sea and the Alps, and occupied their land. The place where they disembarked was called Troy, and the name was extended to the surrounding district. The whole nation were called Veneti. Similar misfortunes led to Aeneas becoming a wanderer, but the fates were preparing a higher destiny for him. He first visited Macedonia, then was carried down to Sicily in quest of a settlement. From Sicily he directed his course to the Laurentian territory. Here too the name of Troy is found, and here the Trojans disembarked, and as their almost infinite wanderings had left them nothing but their arms and their ships, they began to plunder the neighbourhood. The Aborigines, who occupied the country, with their king Latinus at their head, came hastily together from the city and the country districts, to repel the inroads of the strangers by force of arms. From this point there is a twofold tradition. According to the one, Latinus was defeated in battle, and made peace with Aeneas, and subsequently a family alliance. According to the other, whilst the two armies were standing ready to engage and waiting for the signal, Latinus advanced in front of his lines and invited the leader of the strangers to a conference. He inquired of him what manner of men they were, whence they came, what had happened to make them leave their homes, what were they in quest of when they landed in Latinus's territory. When he heard that the men were Trojans, that their leader was Aeneas, 
the son of Anchises and Venus, that their city had been burnt, and that the homeless exiles were now looking for a place to settle in and build a city. He was so struck with the noble bearing of the men and their leader, and their readiness to accept alike either peace or war, that he gave his right hand as a solemn pledge of friendship for the future. A formal treaty was made between the leaders and mutual greetings exchanged between the armies. Latinus received Aeneas as a guest in his house, and there, in the presence of his tutelary deities, completed the political alliance by a domestic one, and gave his daughter in marriage to Aeneas. This incident confirmed the Trojans in the hope that they had reached the term of their wanderings and won a permanent home. They built a town, which Aeneas called Lavinium after his wife. In a short time a boy was born of the new marriage, to whom his parents gave the name of Ascanius. 2. In a short time the Aborigines and Trojans became involved in war with Turnus, the king of the Rutulians. Lavinia had been betrothed to him before the arrival of Aeneas, and, furious at finding a stranger preferred to him, he declared war against both Latinus and Aeneas. Neither side could congratulate themselves on the result of the battle. The Rutulians were defeated, but the victorious Aborigines and Trojans lost their leader Latinus. Feeling their need of allies, Turnus and the Rutulians had recourse to the celebrated power of the Etruscans and Mezentius, their king, who was reigning at Caeri, a wealthy city in those days. From the first he had felt anything but pleasure at the rise of the new city, and now he regarded the growth of the Trojan state as much too rapid to be safe to its neighbours, so he welcomed the proposal to join forces with the Rutulians. To keep the Aborigines from abandoning him in the face of this strong coalition, and to secure their being not only under the same laws, but also the same designation, Aeneas called both nations by the common name of Latins. From that time, the Aborigines were not behind the Trojans in their loyal devotion to Aeneas. So great was the power of Etruria, that the renown of her people had filled not only the inland parts of Italy, but also the coastal districts along the whole length of the land, from the Alps to the Straits of Messina. Aeneas, however, trusting to the loyalty of the two nations, who were day by day growing into one, led his forces into the field, instead of awaiting the enemy behind his walls. The battle resulted in favour of the Latins, but it was the last mortal act of Aeneas. His tomb, whatever it is lawful and right to call him, is situated on the bank of the Numicius. He is addressed as Jupiter in Diges. 3. Ascanius and the Foundation of Alba His son Ascanius was not old enough to assume the government, but his throne remained secure throughout his minority. During that interval, such was Lavinia's force of character, though a woman was regent, the Latin state and the kingdom of his father and grandfather were preserved unimpaired for her son. I will not discuss the question, for who could speak decisively about a matter of such extreme antiquity, whether the man whom the Julian house claim, under the name of Eulus, as the founder of their name, was this Ascanius, or an older one than he, born of Crusa, whilst Ilium was still intact, and after its fall a sharer in his father's fortunes. This Ascanius, wherever born, or of whatever mother, it is generally agreed in any case that he was the son of Aeneas. 
left to his mother, or his stepmother, the city of Lavinium, which was for those days a prosperous and wealthy city, with a superabundant population, and built a new city at the foot of the Alban Hills, which from its position, stretching along the side of the hill, was called Alba Longa. An interval of thirty years elapsed between the foundation of Lavinium and the colonization of Alba Longa. Such had been the growth of the Latin power, mainly through the defeat of the Etruscans, that neither at the death of Aeneas, nor during the regency of Lavinia, nor during the immature years of the reign of Ascanius, did either Mezentius and the Etruscans or any other of their neighbours venture to attack them. When terms of peace were being arranged, the river Albula, now called the Tiber, had been fixed as the boundary between the Etruscans and the Latins. Ascanius was succeeded by his son Silvius, who by some chance had been born in the forest. He became the father of Aeneas Silvius, who in his turn had a son, Latinus Silvius. He planted a number of colonies. The colonists were called Prisci Latini. The cognomen of Silvius was common to all the remaining kings of Alba, each of whom succeeded his father. Their names are Alba, Attis, Capis, Capitus, Tiberinus, who was drowned in crossing the Albula, and his name transferred to the river, which became henceforth the famous Tiber. Then came his son Agrippa, and after him his son Romulus Silvius. He was struck by lightning, and left the crown to his son Aventinus, whose shrine was on the hill which bears his name and is now a part of the city of Rome. He was succeeded by Proca, who had two sons, Numitor and Amulius. To Numitor, the elder, he bequeathed the ancient throne of the Silvian house. Violence, however, proved stronger than either the father's will or the respect due to the brother's seniority, for Amulius expelled his brother and seized the crown. Adding crime to crime, he murdered his brother's sons and made the daughter, Rea Silvia, a vestal virgin, thus under the pretense of honouring her, depriving her of all hopes of issue. End of section 1